Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Sorry to have kept you waiting for a moment or two, but the traffic is bad uh, today, which I guess is a good sign. It means somebody's doing some Christmas shopping, which uh, is otherwise not apparent from the retail <coughs> sales statistics. But uh, the um, guest this morning is Michael Chertoff, Homeland Security Secretary uh, in the Bush administration. Uh, he's been the Homeland Secretary since February 2005, which is a good long stint for a U.S. Cabinet Secretary. And indeed, his predecessor, Tom Ridge, spoke at this podium in this hall uh, in 2004. Uh, so I guess we can expect the next one along uh, in a few years' time. Um, but Michael's particularly welcome because uh, he is an LSE alum as well. Uh, he was at Harvard but spent a year in the mid-'70s uh, in the LSE, and he and I exchanged reminiscences about that when I called on him in his office in Washington a year or so, 18 months or so uh, ago, and uh, has met some <coughs> of our alumni in the United States. Uh, he's also going to talk about something which is a central concern to a number of people in this school. We have a center for the analysis of risk and regulation here, which works on these questions, uh, looking at the way in which the public authorities think about risk and seek to manage it. Uh, so we have a strong academic interest uh, in this subject. So we were particularly pleased when you said you'd like to come along that this was a topic you wanted to uh, cover. So without any further ado, I won't do the tiresome thing that some chairmen do and read out the, center, the central points of your lecture. Uh, I will hand over to you. Thank you. Well, I, I uh, apologize in advance. I have a little bit of a cold I'm recovering from. Uh, the most important part of the introduction, of course, was recognizing my prior uh, status as a student for one year at the school. I know, like everybody else who's been out of school for a long time, when you come back with a group of people, you are very tiresome about pointing out all the various places you ate and where you sat. And I know I always sat in the back of the lecture hall, so I'm sure there's a seat being occupied there that I once warmed. Uh, and I can't think of a, a better place to talk about risk uh, at than this school, although I have to say that I didn't actually study economics here. I studied history. But since then, of course, uh, much of what I've been involved in has been the issue of managing risk. And it's a very topical question, how to manage risk at this particular moment in time. Of course, most people, uh, when they think about risk, uh, at least since September of 2001, at least in the United States, are thinking about risk in terms of acts of terror. And most recently and tragically, a couple of weeks ago in Mumbai, we were reminded again of the risks we all face in free societies from terrorists who commit acts of violence. On the other hand, if you open the newspapers, uh, over the last three months, financial risk is very much in the news, and we see the consequences of failing to manage financial risk uh, being very vividly underscored every day uh, by what we see in the newspaper and, most important, in the financial uh, statements. And then, of course, if you live in certain parts of the world, it's risk from natural disasters that is very much present to your mind. If I look back over the last year, um, and recognizing that part of my domain is dealing with the response to natural disasters in the United States, 
Uh, we had a year <clears throat> from 2007 to 2008 that encompassed uh, raging wildfires in California, unprecedented floods in the Midwest, and I know you've had uh, recently had similar flooding here, uh, tornadoes uh, that cut through much of the Midwest as well, and of course, uh, two hurricanes in the Gulf, one in Louisiana and one in Texas, all of which was an awful lot of natural disaster to manage. And so all of these things have in common, although they present in different ways, the question of how we properly manage risk. And it's been my experience over the last four years in participating in and observing the process of managing risk that we don't tend to do it very well in government. And that the key, maybe the key requirement of effective government, uh, and frankly the key requirement of an effective society is proper management of risk. Now let me be clear to say management of risk does not mean elimination of risk, because you can't eliminate risk unless you stop all activity, and even that doesn't eliminate risk. Getting out of bed in the morning ha is a risk, and staying in bed in the morning is a risk. So the question becomes, how do you manage risk? And we've certainly had a lot of experience in the last eight years, and we've drawn a lot of lessons from the experiences that we've had. And let me talk about some of the risk management failures we've seen in the last eight years, at least in the United States, and uh, I'm sure you can supply your own examples. Of course, the most <clears throat> famous terrorist attack in the United States was the attack on September 11th. And there was a commission formed after that, uh, uh, those series of attacks, and the commission concluded that there was a failure to manage or to respond adequately to warnings that might have averted or minimized those attacks. Now, let me be clear. Nobody said that there was a specific warning uh, that an attack was coming uh, at any particular time, at any particular place, or involving aircraft. In fact, had you talked to people prior to September 11th and asked what is the most likely way a terrorist will attack, they would have said a truck uh, bomb, a truck explosive, because we had repeatedly seen that for a decade or more uh, in dealing with terrorists uh, in the Middle East. Nevertheless, it would also be fair to say that there was a great deal of generalized warning about the possibility of a terrorist attack in the United States and generalized discussion about the need to place certain measures, uh, uh, have them ready and poised so that if, in fact, an attack were to become imminent or likely, we could respond effectively. The second area where we saw a failure to manage risk was in the area of natural disasters, specifically Hurricane Katrina. Now there, uh, obviously we've had hurricanes for pretty much every year in recorded memory uh, and many years in the Gulf of, of uh, the Caribbean and the Gulf of Mexico. However, what happened in Katrina was not really the consequence of a hurricane by itself. It was a hurricane that caused the collapse of a levee wall, which then resulted in the flooding of a city. And so the question is, did we manage risk properly with respect to the strengthening of the levee walls? And in terms of making sure that we had in place a regular, robust system to assure that we were maintaining the kinds of protection against the foreseeable risk that would minimize the consequences of that risk. And here there's a, a little known and uh, somewhat sad story. The actual cause of the flood, as I said, was the collapse of a wall along a canal that runs right through the center of a good deal of New Orleans. And the canal uh, is attached to a lake called Lake Pontchartrain. 
And when the hurricane hit, as is not uncommon when hurricanes hit, the water in the lake was pushed north because the hurricane came from the south. And then as the wind receded, the water returned and hit the south shore. And because there was a narrow channel, it forced its way into the channel with a higher than ordinary velocity. And it was the hydraulic pressure that caused the collapse of that wall. Now, there was actually a simple engineering fix for this vulnerability. If you put a barrier at the mouth of the canal in the lake and you drop the barrier, that will prevent a surge into the canal and therefore there will not be a collapse of the wall. And we, in fact, created a barrier like that after Hurricane Katrina and we put it into place. And this past year when I was in New Orleans in the preparation for Hurricane Gustav, uh, we actually dropped the barrier as the water rose and it performed exactly as you would expect. No water surged into the canal and there was no threat of any wall collapse. So I asked the question, did anybody think about this prior to 2005? And I was surprised to learn that it wasn't a failure to think about it, but it was a failure to act on the thought that caused there to be no barrier in place. In fact, for years, people had talked about building a barrier. And every time it was raised, the people who lived along the lake objected and prevented it from happening because their concern was that it would ruin the view of the lake from their houses. Of course, their houses became inundated as a consequence of that decision. That is really not good risk management. That was a failure to properly account for a risk that was foreseeable, although the timing was not necessarily known, and to take a modest set of measures that would have eliminated or dramatically reduced the consequences of that. And of course, we're living with the most recent example of failure to manage risk in the financial market. Now, the idea that there might be a bubble, that there might be asset inflation, uh, is not something that just dawned on everybody in September or August of this year. This has been discussed um, for a great period of time. The fact that we had a lot of relatively uh, large amount of money that was available, it was seeking investment, uh, assets were continuing to rise, at least in the United States, I can't speak for Europe, uh, people tended to rely upon assets as their principal investment, and therefore they spent and uh, continued to uh, borrow and expand their credit, relying on the underpinning of a bubbled asset to support what they were doing. Some of these things could have been averted. Uh, certainly greater capital requirements, restrictions on certain kinds of financial instruments, uh, all of these things put in place would have minimized, uh, maybe not eliminated, but minimized some of the consequences we are currently feeling. So what is in common with each of these three episodes of the last eight years? Well, in each of these instances, after the fact, very vigorous action was taken. Since 9-11, we've done an awful lot to prevent a recurrence in terms of building intelligence capabilities, uh, taking steps and measures that would make it not impossible, but much more difficult for attacks to occur. After Hurricane Katrina, we overhauled our capacity to plan. We did put into effect measures like a barrier that would drop uh, at the canal, and we have done uh, other things to make sure that our ability to respond is much more robust and that we are taking at least some steps to reinforce some of the natural infrastructure that protects the areas in the Gulf. And I can predict, although we're not out of the financial crisis, that there will be steps, hopefully well-considered, perhaps some ill-considered, after the fact, 
to uh, take action to remedy what, what has occurred in the financial markets and to build protections for the future. But the problem is doing risk reduction after the fact is not risk reduction. That's just repairing damage that's already been done. In each of these cases, an investment in risk reduction that was intelligent and disciplined before the risk would in the long run have cost a lot less money. Uh, the damages that were sustained, let's even put aside human life, in the first two tragedies and the economic consequences of the third um, uh, are, are much, much greater than the investment it would have taken to minimize the risk. And what's even more disheartening is, as an eventuality or a catastrophe comes to recede into, into the background, increasingly what happens is people are unwilling to sustain the investment that they were prepared to undertake in the wake of the event because they, their memories fade, they lose interest, and they become fixated on the short-term and what is uh, immediate rather than looking at the long term. And that's really the essence of the argument I'm making today. Let me give you a couple of examples of what I mean, by the way. <clears throat> One of the key risk reduction measures identified by the 9-11 Commission was secure identification. It was the ability to use fraudulent or phony identification that allowed the 9-11 hijackers to evade some of the existing protections against coming into the country, moving around, and getting on airplanes. So, not surprisingly, the 9-11 Commission said we have to tighten up and make much more robust the standards for identification documents like driver's licenses and the like. Now, it's a little expensive, and it's a little inconvenient, and we made significant investments over a number of years to move to the goal set by the Commission. And yet, I found in the last couple of years, uh, because we haven't had a successful attack, in the United States since September 11th, increasingly people started to complain about the cost and the inconvenience of the measures which seemed so appropriate and necessary in 2002. For example, our requirement that we have some kind of secure identification to cross our land borders started to encounter objections because people in border communities were afraid that it would discourage impulse shoppers coming in from Canada people who might want to come across to spend money on, on dinner or to buy something in a store on the other side of the border, if they had to think to carry a certain kind of identification, they wouldn't come, and therefore there would be lost revenue for the merchants. I, I don't need to tell you that if someone took advantage of a weakness in the border to come across and blow up a building, that would be far more costly, and the excuse that I didn't want to do something that was bad for business would not be a very persuasive excuse. And yet I've, I have found that in the period of time that's passed, it is harder and harder to justify the investment against a long-term, low probability but high consequence risk in the face of a demand for immediate gratification by people who have commercial interests. Similarly, you would think after Hurricane Katrina, it would be, as we say, a no-brainer to get people to evacuate when a hurricane is bearing down on the city of New Orleans. And yet it was quite difficult in Hurricane Gustav. Uh, we had to, in a sense, persuade people to save their lives because a couple of years had gone by and people had forgotten and they didn't want to take the steps necessary to minimize the risk. In the end, we were able to get them to do it and we had a, a uniform and very successful evacuation. But the perils of forgetfulness are particularly acute in managing risk. So let's ask how we can make this process better. And let me begin by asking the question, who ought to manage risk? Um, I think 
in a free society and in a market-based society, responsibility to manage risk ought to begin with individuals in the private sector. The reason for that is very simple. They have a natural interest, for the most part, in managing their own risk. Uh, they have the best uh, – they're in the best position to evaluate the costs and benefits to themselves of how much risk you want to manage. If you go too far in managing risk, you stifle activity. If you don't go far enough, you put yourself at, in jeopardy. And it's the person whose interests are very much at stake who will suffer the costs and gain the benefits that has the best incentive and probably the best knowledge in the general case to, to manage risk. And yet, as I've identified, <clears throat> we clearly can't rely on individuals in the private sector alone because time and again, we've seen failure to manage risk properly if it's left entirely to the private sector or to the individual. And so my argument will be that there are cases where government must step in to make sure risk is managed properly, uh, and that there are three particular cases for doing that. Now, I'm generally a free market person, so I sometimes get asked the question, well, isn't what you're arguing for government regulation, isn't that contrary to the free market? And the truth is there is no such thing as a truly free market. Every market is bounded by rules. If we had a truly free market, you could lie to people, you could deceive them about the quality of goods, uh, you could refuse to honor contracts, you could even steal the money back if you lost money in a transaction. And clearly government in all of these instances steps in and puts rules in place to protect the contract, to prevent fraud, and to uh, react in the case of violence. So we have to acknowledge at the outset that a free market and freedom in general can only exist within a state of rules. Therefore, it shouldn't be necessary to argue the case that we need rules. The question should be, when are rules appropriate and when should they be imposed by the government? And when I look at the risks that have not been managed well <coughs> by individuals in the private sector, it seems to me that there are three categories of risk that uh, are systemically undermanaged by the private sector. The first is when there are misaligned time horizons. When the person or the entity performing the cost-benefit analysis is measuring short-term benefits and long-term costs, there's a natural tendency people have uh, to favor the choice that produces the short-term benefit. And if the cost is way out there and the benefit is the here and now, and particularly, for example, if you're in a business that is focused on quarterly earnings and annual reports, uh, there's a real tendency to find your attention focused on the short-term cost-benefit analysis. That misalignment again and again proves to be uh, a, a profound problem. It's that misalignment that causes people at the border to say, we don't want secure identification because it means next week we'll get less business for people wanting to eat in our restaurants. If those people believed that next week there might be a terrorist attack, we wouldn't be hearing objections to the secure identification. So I think when there is a, a misalignment between the, the time horizons, that's an area where government has to come in and exert some rule and regulation to make sure we have properly aligned our cost-benefit analysis. The second uh, example, it's a classic example, is when ex externalities are not being uh, counted in the process of weighing your costs and benefits in the private sector. This goes way back. If you go back to the law of nuisance, uh, in the common law a couple of hundred years ago, 
It was established uh, without much difficulty that if you own a piece of property upstream on a river and you dispose of your waste by dumping it in the river, uh, you can be sued for nuisance or you can even be enjoined by a court and prevented from doing it. And the logic behind this is very simple. From the standpoint of the upstream property owner, he's weighed his costs and benefits. His benefit to dumping the garbage is he gets it out of his house, and he doesn't have the cost because the water takes it downstream, and he doesn't feel any of the injury caused by the pollution. It's the downstream owner who has that problem. So here again, with externalities, is an example where government must step in to align costs and benefits over a number of people. A contemporary example, by the way, of externalities is not just <clears throat> the need to make sure people don't injure others, but it's the need to make sure that people don't fail to perform responsibilities when the impact of that failure will fall on other people as well as themselves. I'll be concrete. <clears throat> In a world of interdependencies, sometimes a business that might, if it were in isolation, make the judgment that it's worth only having a certain amount of protection because the cost to a failure is maybe a certain amount of lost revenue, that business will not take account of the costs imposed on others when it fails. If you take, for example, electric power, if the electric power grid goes down because a transformer is blown because you haven't protected it from a, a hurricane or, a, or a, a, a rainstorm, there'll be a loss of revenue to the electric company or to the power company. And the power company may judge that it can tolerate a day of revenue loss or two while it repairs the station. What they will not be taking account of is what will happen to everybody who depends on that power, the hospitals, uh, the gas stations, which have to have power to pump the gas that is necessary to power the cars that will take people to schools or to other kinds of jobs. I can tell you from the experience of living through a number of hurricanes, power failure lies at the hub of, of a whole series of cascading events that make it almost impossible to get a, a city or an area up and running again effectively. So in making sure that power companies invest in things like robust safety measures, uh, security for transformers, and the ability to withstand certain kinds of natural disasters, government has to step in because the power company itself is not economically motivated to make the investment that is necessary to avert a harm that cascades across an entire economy. The final area where I would argue that my experience is government has to intervene to manage risk is in the area of transparency. All transactions depend on confidence. If you don't know the quality of what you're buying or you can't trust the uh, financial instruments uh, uh, which are the, at the hub of what you are doing in an economic relationship, then it is impossible for you to do anything in the world of transactions. And of course, often the, what is in the food that you eat or what is uh, the characteristic of the financial instruments you're holding or even the bank, the soundness and safety of the bank, these are not going to be evident to the normal person. And the, the, the cost of actually investigating how sound the food is or how sound the bank is would be prohibitive. So here again is an area where government regulation is critical to make sure you have the transparency that is the foundation of trust. And I think this is well illustrated by the current financial crisis. What has spurred this spiral downward in confidence and in economic activity is a crisis of confidence relating to the financial products that have 
burgeoned in the last several years, and the soundness of the institutions which hold them on their balance sheets. Um, a simpler example is identity theft. Increasingly, the ability to transact business, whether it be personal or financial, with another person depends upon your being confident that you know who they are, that they know who you are, that you have some sense of what their reputation and their assets are, so you can engage in some kind of a relationship. But if you can't be confident in their identity, if you don't have an ability to assure that they are who they represent themselves to be, then there's a loss of confidence, and that loss of transparency hinders the ability for people to have relationships with each other. That's why I believe that strong and secure identification uh, documents or, or other kinds of authentication devices actually are a way that government can help individuals manage risk by enabling them to determine who they're dealing with and whether this is in fact a person that they want to transact with or they want to even have a, a social relationship with. So with that, <coughs> I would say that four years of dealing, maybe more, four years at least of dealing with managing risk have told me that government has uh, tended not to step in where it should to manage risk. The idea here is not to have people sitting in government office buildings telling individuals how to do their business or how to live their lives. It's to make sure that when people make those decisions, they're able to do so within a framework of properly aligned time horizons with an understanding of the consequences and the costs that they may be visiting on others and with the transparency that allows them to make intelligent decisions uh, that are based on facts as opposed to guesswork. I do have to say we don't want to err on the other side. Um, often, finding the balance, of course, is the essence of good public policy. And just as what we need is intelligent, strong, and disciplined regulation by the government where it's appropriate, we need to make sure that it doesn't become overly coercive or overly prescriptive. An example, uh, airline hijacking is an area where, because of the externalities, uh, government regulation is appropriate and it exists. That's why when you get on airplanes now, you're limited in the amount of liquid you can take on and people are you know, searching your things and asking for your identity. Now, I happen to think that that's a reasonable set of precautions to take against the cost of somebody blowing up airplanes and the impact it would have on human lives as well as the economy. But I also recognize we could overregulate. We could, for example, try to eliminate the risk of a hijacking. Uh, at one level, that means you just prevent air travel, because without air travel, there can't be a hijacked aircraft. Uh, perhaps slightly less drastic, but not much more so, we could strip search every single person. And we could say you can't bring anything on an airplane except what you can carry in your pockets. That would really drive down the risk, but there the cost would be uh, perhaps too high to pay. So as with all of these issues of, of risk, doing too much management or too much effort to eliminate can be as bad as too little. And I think we're in a constant process of uh, an iter iterative process where we, the regulator and the regulated have to go back and forth to see precisely what the right balance is. In the end, I think what people look to from government is the right bounding of risk. That's why we have societies to protect us, not to stifle us, but to give us a set of rules that allows us to make the intelligent, free decisions that we want to make to live our lives well and happily and with prosperity, but at the same time to make sure that we and others are responsible in 
fully incorporating all of the consequences of our activities in what we do. The world we're entering into is more complex, more global, more complicated. That means the risks will be harder and harder for a single individual to weigh and calculate. And the key for you and for all of us over the next 20, 30, 40 years is going to be to refine a risk management process that deals with that complexity, that is prepared to make investment now, even if the benefits of the investment in terms of risk reduction are not short-term, but are long-term, and that is prepared to be uh, iterative back and forth in terms of constantly adjusting the balance of risk management to take account of changing realities and what we learn through the life that we have in our experiences. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Well, the Secretary said he will take some questions, and we have a few minutes. And well, yes, uh, a lot of a lot of arms. I'll take the, the first one there. Yeah, guy in sort of black shirt. If you could say. Um, who you are and where you're from. We'll take two or three, should we? And then, uh, sure. yeah, okay. All right, thanks. Thanks, Secretary, for the talk. Uh, my name is Nishant Pagadia in the uh, Department of Sociology. I'm a master's student here. And you're uh, sitting in the back. I know, exactly. <laughs> it's your seat. <laughs> uh, my, question, my question is specific to how the department decides to fund initiatives in one area of risk um, over another. And the example I'm going to talk about is uh, climate change, where some may argue that there's already a much greater risk and threat <coughs> than other factors uh, with less certainty. So, you know, how does the department decide to fund initiatives in areas such as, for example, immigration, with uh, building a 700-mile wall on the border of Mexico, instead of using those funds for more certain threats associated with, example, again, global warming? Sure. Well, first let me say that actually the decision <coughs> to weigh funding, let's say, climate change or environmental issues as opposed to immigration issues, is not made by, by my department, it's made by Congress, because overall, in terms of allocating the funding uh, uh, across the entire U.S. budget, and I'm sure that's true here too, the basic decision as to what to allocate to each department is made by Congress. It's ultimately made, the administration proposes a budget across the entire spectrum <coughs> through what we call the Office of Management and Budget. Uh, our budget tends to be focused on those areas that are within our authority and our domain. Uh, we have a broad domain. Climate change, however, is not within that domain. So that's not a trade-off I make. But I do make trade-offs, for example, as to how much I want to spend on um, airline security, how much I want to spend on, on security with respect to uh, maritime domains, what I want to spend on immigration. Some of that is driven by the, by the law. A lot of it is. The law... Congress tells me I have to do achieve certain things, and so that's the framework. Uh, within that framework, I try to do it based on risk. I look at what is the threat, what is the vulnerability, and what is the consequence of a particular threat. And to the extent Congress has given me the opportunity to uh, make that allocation, I drive to things which are uh, the highest risk, particularly the highest consequence, because I think that I give a little more weight to that uh, than the other factors, uh, particularly because of, of the phenomenon of that low probability, high consequence. So I'm, like everybody else, bounded by a series of, ch of uh, choices made across the board, and uh, that's ultimately a, a really a political debate. I mean, that's really where 
members uh, of Congress respond to what the public wants. I can't say they always do it well because Congress, too, has a, has a short-term, long-term problem. I mean, whether it's climate change or, um, at least in my domain, uh, <clears throat> minimizing the possibility of a nuclear bomb or a biological weapon, on the one hand, those are the kinds of problems that will probably not be felt for 10, 20, 30, 40 years. There may even be uncertainty about how likely it is it'll be felt. Uh, and the politicians who are investing tend to balance that against uh, the money for a school that they can open this year or a, a, a welfare benefit they can distribute this year. And for people who are running for public office every few years, there's a natural tendency to want to focus on the benefit that can be distributed um, this year and next year before the election, as opposed to one which is only going to be manifested 10, 20, 30 years from now when the politicians retired. I, I don't want to sound cynical, but that uh, short-termism is also a, an infection in the political process, and that's why it's important to try to build uh, a consensus and a, and a persistence in the political process to drive towards long-term solutions. Thank you. There's another one. Just Yeah, I've got to tap on Still in the Chertoff seats, we are. Uh. Thank you for coming, Mr. Secretary. It's great to have you. Um, my question is relevant to the USA Patriot Act. Um, do you believe that the long-term costs of the USA Patriot Act vis-a-vis -vis undermining constitutional rights outweigh the short-term benefits of protecting acts of terrorism? Okay, so now <coughs> um, I'm going to raise the question whether there's – what in particular – do you think the USA Patriot Act does? There's a lot of misinformation about this. What do you think the USA Patriot Act does that is a problem under the Constitution? What, is, what are you objecting to? Um, how it undermines the right to privacy in the Fourth Amendment. But specifically, what do you think it mandates that, that does that? Um, the ability of officers to wiretap phones of individuals without their consent or knowledge of it in advance. Well, first, let me tell you, the USA Patriot Act does not do that. That's not, that statute does not authorize that. And one of the problems we have is that um, I, this act, which I have part authorship of, it has become the vessel in which people have poured all kinds of ideas that are simply not part of the act. So the USA Patriot Act does not allow warrantless wiretapping uh, uh, of people without their knowledge. There are statutes that do allow wiretapping of people without their knowledge. There's a, a, an act called FISA, which goes back many years, and there are other acts that um, have allowed wiretapping for many years against criminals. Um, but that's not the Patriot Act. So now having established that we're talking about a different law, I, I think in general I can tell you that uh, wiretapping, which is all done within the framework of the law and it's all done with, you know, court approval. Now, not, now, the Constitution doesn't require, for example, in certain contexts that you get court approval in advance. But uh, wiretapping in general gives, uh, in a world of terrorism where people plan uh, using various kinds of communication devices, it is to the person protecting a country what the radar system was to, let's say, Britain uh, during World War II or the United States during the Cold War. It is the only way to get advance warning of what is going on. If you didn't wiretap, uh, 
you would not have any idea when something is coming. You'd learn about it when it actually occurs. So I actually think that is a good cost-benefit analysis. But I, I make the point about the USA Patriot Act to underscore that we have used this tool for decades. And it is not uh, something that was new or initiated in 2001. And, you know, there are some technical details back and forth in terms of how FISA has been changed over time based on how technology has evolved. But the basic concept has been used for 30 or 40 years, and as far as I can tell, it hasn't resulted in a, any kind of constitutional problem, and it's been upheld by the courts, and it's actually been quite successful in averting a lot of really dangerous bad stuff. But it has nothing to do with the Patriot Act. Uh, down here, yeah, let's uh, take one in the middle. You caught my eye first. Uh, there's a mic on its way to you. Hi, uh, my name is James Husserl, um, basically lived in New Orleans for the last nine years. And my question is the following. Uh, is the government actually allowing any, um, let me change a little bit. Is the, is the government actually protecting the public as much as is possible? Right now, and my question <coughs> relates to the following. Michael Brown, as you know, was basically directing the federal response and he was completely unqualified for the task that he was assigned. That's why I'm asking. Well, I, I don't want to get into, into pe discussing uh, people. I mean, I, I relieved him, so, I mean, obviously, I relieved him of command, so you can draw your own inference. But <laughs> um, let me say this. Uh, in the period of times since Katrina, uh, prior to Katrina, the civilian part of the government had never really uh, developed a planning capability. The military does a lot of planning. Civilian agencies tend not to do that, and I think that was a significant uh, vulnerability, as well as, as I pointed out, the barrier, uh, which the lake owners did not want to have in place. If the barrier had been there in 2005, Katrina would be treated as kind of an average hurricane that you talk about. It wouldn't be a, a big deal. So here's what we've done. We've built a very um, detailed uh, and well-rehearsed set of plans for evacuating and things of that sort, and we actually tested it in the summer when Hurricane Gustav came and it worked very well. We've got very experienced people who now actually work with local officials uh, to make sure that we do have good relationships built and we built capabilities with the military and using information technology to be able to track supplies and things of that sort much more effectively. Uh, and we put into place some uh, infrastructure that would eliminate some of the most obvious risks. So we are now investing in doing some of the things that really do draw down the risk. I do have to emphasize, though, that there is an individual responsibility in this. When people don't take minimal steps to prepare themselves for a disaster, uh, they're actually making it much harder for the government because a disaster is a disaster because it's bad. It's ne there's not a nice disaster. There's not one that's fun and convenient. And so you have to expect that under the best of circumstances, in a, in a major, major hurricane or natural event, you may be without food, water, power for 48 or 72 hours. And that's why stockpiling these things, having plans, having a radio, kind of basic preparation is critical to making sure society is able to have some resiliency. So this is a, it's clearly a role for government, but it's also a role for uh, individuals and families and businesses as well. Thanks. The end here, yes. Good afternoon. My name is Aaron Shulman. I uh, 
well, an alum of the general course, and I now work in the financial services industry in London. And it's sort of a general question about the current uh, financial crisis. Um, in managing risk, is do you think that people too often err on the side of looking at uh, today's events historically? It seems that there's an increasing tendency to ask the question whether the current crisis is the 80s, a repeat of Japan's lost decade, and everything else. And if so, what's the best way to remove the historical context when trying to analyze uh, you know, the, the severe risks we face in the financial uh, industry I, today? I think that's a good question. I think it's partly true. <clears throat> Part I, I think people do do this. Partly I think they don't. I think people, to the extent people do it, in order to figure out a good response, and they're asking the question, what worked before, that actually can be useful. Now, analogies are dangerous because everything is different. But one of the ways you learn lessons, one of the ways you learn lessons is from mistakes. And every time I've been involved in a situation where there was a problem, I have learned from that. And I've been able then, the next time it came up, to say, this is what worked last time and this is what didn't work. What is dangerous is looking to the past as if it's a predictor of the future in terms of future risks. That is a, a very common human tendency. And it has two consequences. First, it tends to focus you on the most recent thing that just happened, and that's not necessarily the thing that's likely to happen again. And second, it tends to lull you into the belief that if it hasn't happened before, uh, it won't happen in the future. The, there's nothing new under the sun uh, fallacy. And that's been exposed again and again not to be an accurate prediction. There, there's a book called The Black Swan you probably all read that talks about this issue to some extent. So I think that that's a danger. I'm... Even before I read the book, I was a believer in what I know the financial people call the fat tail, the, the low, low probability but very high consequence risk because, truthfully, the routine risks, people actually usually, usually do a pretty good job managing. It's that low probability but very, very catastrophic consequence that people just aren't adapted for, and that's really where government has to be disciplined in thinking, thinking about it. Uh, yeah, the beard, grey shirt. Maybe it once was white. don't know. Okay. Yeah, okay. that's you. Um, where does civil rights and due process of law factor into your evaluation of risk management, particularly in relation to the immigration and custom enforcement agencies raid on undocumented workers? Isn't it a violation of due process enumerated in the Fourth and Fifteenth Amendments of the Constitution by targeting anyone who looks illegal, causing fear within the immigrant community, regardless of their status? How do you particularly measure the cost or give a weight to the protection of civil rights in your cost-benefit analysis that you've talked about in this case or even in a broader context, say, with the Patriot Act? All right. So first, with respect to the issue of arresting people who are here illegally, uh, I mean, happily... There. The, uh, yeah, there. there. Happ <laughs> happily, there the decision has been made by the courts for a long period of time. Uh, the bottom line is the courts... Have, and actually, the way that at least in our country, the United States, the way the cost-benefit analysis is uh, performed, it's under the Constitution, it's under the Fourth Amendment, uh, which talks about reasonableness. A, uh, a reasonable restraint in one context is not reasonable in another. For example, if you go into a facility and you get a search warrant or a warrant, which is what we typically do, which means a judge has determined that there's a basis to reasonable, uh, probable cause to believe there's something going on there, you are permitted to stop everybody there and ask them some basic questions about who they are and whether they're here lawfully. 
that's a very minimal intrusion. That's maybe a matter of a minute or something like that. And the courts have said that kind of intrusion you can do based on any, any kind of suspicion at all. You need nothing other than just the desire to encounter people. If you want to do something more, if you want to arrest them, then you do need probable cause. So if we go into a facility and we question people, and based on the questions and other things that we see, the, the, there is probable cause to arrest them as having violated the law by being present illegally, then we have the right to take that step. Now, usually in, this, in the um, immigration context, that results in a deportation, and that's, you know, that, that process ends that way. But if we wanted to go further, if we thought that in addition to being present unlawfully, the individual had actually committed a separate crime, for example, stolen someone's identity, and we wanted to actually put them in prison for a period of time, that would be a greater restraint. And so there would be a higher requirement, which would be proof beyond a reasonable doubt in front of a jury. So the way we do it is we grade um, the degree of the restraint, and based on the degree of the restraint is the requirement you need to show in terms of proof. And that's basically, at least in the United States, been the kind of tried and true method for doing this for, for a couple hundred years. Likewise, in the Patriot Act, I'm going to ask you, uh, what exactly in the Patriot Act are you thinking about? Because I actually, the Patriot Act is a very modest statute with a very big name. So I, I've now taken to asking people what they actually object to besides the name. So is there something in particular you're worried about? I think it's a broader issue of creating fear in the community, um, a fear of uh, violation of your due process rights, <coughs> um, both within the immigrant community, uh, a fear to go to work because you're afraid that you might. Hello? Oh. Well, well uh, or, 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 or a fear... Uh, of maybe even flying because you're concerned about the way that they're coming after me, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> the well, fear that, also, the, fear that the, the way that you might look if you look like a particular person that could be targeted um, will be violated uh, under, our, uh, under the protection that you're supposed Yeah, I, I get the idea. I, I, think, I think I would say this. I mean, I, I, I think it's important and we try very hard to, uh, in terms of how we enforce the law, to not do it based on impermissible factors. Uh, how you look is not, you know, it depends on the context. Sometimes a person, in a certain context, how a person looks or behaves is appropriate. I mean, for example, if we had a description of somebody who was wanted for a crime and they looked a certain way, it would be very sensible for us to stop people who look that way. Um, if we tried to do ethnic profiling, that would not be permissible and we don't do that. And in terms of people going to work, uh, I mean, I hate to put it this way, but in a way, if you're not lawfully in the country and not legally allowed to work, it's actually deterrence uh, to say to somebody, you, if you go to work, there's a chance you'll be arrested. You may agree or disagree with the immigration policy. And when I was, you know, well, I'm, when, when this subject came up a year ago, uh, the president uh, pushed hard to get a comprehensive policy that would allow people illegally to find some way to pay a fine and, and, and change their status. But here again, Congress chose not to do that. So I think in that circumstance, we have an obligation to deter, and that's really what we do. Have we got time for one more? Yeah, sure. Do, do we, okay. Maybe a woman? Yep, down there here. A woman, yeah, all sure. right. Great. Okay, that's fine. Second row. Oh, wow, great. <laughs> Thank you. 
My name is Esther Zahle. I'm doing an MSc in Global History in the Economic History Department. Since this is, I guess, the last question, it might be a good idea to take this back to London. And I was wondering whether you, as an internationally recognized expert on risk management, might be able to give some advice on a current risk situation that we're facing right here at the LSE. At one of the LSE student residence halls, Sydney Webb House, there have been, in this term, repeated violent assaults on students. The LSE is managing this risk by advising the students and the residents to be more streetwise. Well, as these uh, assaults keep happening, this is obviously not a very good way of managing this risk. So I was wondering if you might have some advice on the LSE authorities on that issue. Thank you. <coughs> I think the advice I'll give to myself, not being particularly familiar with this, is I, I should pass it off to the director <laughs> at some point. If you want to do one more question that is within my range of competence. I'm sympathetic. I just don't know the facts. We, we, I, I should probably stay in my field of competence. But yeah, we, we should pick well, another woman. Well, we get, uh, well, we get the last question, which is in there, I can answer that we have actually added an extra security person at Sydney Webb House uh, since the last incident. Thank you. Hi, my name is Joe, and I'm a master's student in international relations. And I guess my question is an appropriate sum-up question, but as uh, Obama's incoming Department of Homeland Security Secretary enters, uh, given that you've outlined so many different non-traditional risks um, and security issues, what kind of advice would you impart on the new, the incoming secretary? Thank you. Well, that's a, that's a, that is a good sum-up question. Um, I, I should say that I've known and been friendly with a new the designated successor for about 15 years. That's one five, not five zero. Oh. And uh, I, I think very highly of her. We worked together both as United States attorneys, as prosecutors, and then when she was governor and I was in this job. And I think she's going to do an excellent job. Um, <clears throat> I w I've given her a, um, you know, we put a very, very extensive set of briefing books together. I've given her a, a kind of a memorandum I wrote uh, that covers kind of a strategic view of the risks. And I won't go through it here, um, but it talks about the need to continue to balance to make sure we're, we're keeping dangerous people and things out of the country and protecting ourselves, but not at a cost that exceeds the benefit in terms of our prosperity and our, our liberty. I think the biggest personal uh, bit of experience I can impart is the difficulty about the job of managing risk in government is there are trade-offs. And that means people are going to be disappointed. Uh, all too often, uh, the way government operates, in, in my experience, is there's a desire to give everybody something. And usually, there's not enough to give everybody what they want. And decisions get made and trade-offs get made either based on who is the angriest or who has the most political power or uh, all kinds of considerations. The thing about risk management is there is a, a reasonably disciplined, analytical way to think about risks. And we do it, for example, when we give money out to, to different uh, jurisdictions. Uh, I believe that uh, it's very important we continue the tradition in my department of being risk-managed and disciplined. I recognize that there is um, a lot of, you know, it's not a way to win a popularity contest because inevitably you'll disappoint people. And um, it's very important not to buckle under, under to that, to, to make your commitments, uh, be faithful to this approach, and then uh, let the chips fall where they may. I don't think that's going to be news to the new uh, secretary, but I do think it's uh, something that bears remembering both in running my department and, frankly, in running government across the board. Thank you. 
There's one last thing you've got to do. All right. Uh, as an alumnus, you get to wear a cap. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.